Thank you, friend. Thank you for lifting that for me. Mm. I love me some Cody. And I love you guys. It's good to see you. We're, um, let's go right to the text today. Uh, Luke is where we're going, Luke 13. And this is yet again, I keep thinking of the message Pastor Ed preached a few months ago on uh, being led where you do not wish to go, because I do find often in preaching the lectionary, and th- boy, this is really one of those weeks, and yet, so interesting. Um, I feel like I've had all of my most spirit-led experiences in preaching since I've been following the lectionary. Isn't that, it's just so weird how God speaks through scripture. Imagine that. Um, stand with me, if you would, for a cryptic passage I've certainly never preached on before. Luke 13, beginning with verse one, at that very time, there were some present who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone. Leave it be for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We're dealing with a lot of people's life first there, I think. Let's, let's pray for just a moment before we're seated. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the mysterious gift of your wonderfully confounding words, and it is precisely the ways that they puzzle and befuddle us that pushes us together in community into your presence today, asking your spirit to be our teacher, asking you to reveal the truth that only you can reveal. Lord, you know that for me today, this message just seems to be pulling on every tender space in me, and I don't know, preaching from that kind of vulnerable space always feels a little bit awkward, and yet it also seems to be where you do your best work is always in human awkwardness. So we just uh, welcome you now, Spirit, to teach us, to lead us, to show us things that really cannot be seen or heard unless you make them plain to us. So we invite that and ask for your help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Grab a seat. So context is that apparently the water cooler conversation in Galilee is all about this thing that's just happened, because we're in a time where during Jesus' life there were a series of many revolts, really that happened long before and after Jesus' earthly life and ministry, where you would have these small uprisings. Here apparently there was a small band of Galileans trying to push back against Roman rule and oppression, and Pilate, who we know from antiquity was notoriously vicious, actually had a reputation for being barbaric, decides to make a statement, not only to kill these Galileans, but to mingle their blood. Uh, with the sacrifices in the temple to make it. So it was just this devastating move. It's shocking. It's outrageous. 
Think about some of the really outrageous stories that we hear in the news sometimes when a child is murdered. The kind, the kind of thing where people just like, they're shaking, their, they just can't believe this really happened. So that's the big conversation. And Jesus here makes a really provocative point. Uh, these Galileans seemed to suffer the worst possible fate, and that not only were they killed, but then their own blood was mingled in a way that was ceremonially unclean. It kind of made a mockery of their whole religion and everything they stood for. Jesus says, you don't think that those guys are any worse than anybody else living here, do you? You don't think somehow that because they met such a terrible fate that that's because they were terrible people. They were somehow different than you. And then he tells a story that literally we have no record, uh, record of anywhere else in antiquity except for when Jesus tells about it. Apparently recently, this Tower of Siloam had fallen and several people were killed there, just random fluke kind of accident. And Jesus reinforces the same point again. So these people who died when the tower fell, you think they were worse sinners than anybody else? And it gets right to the heart, I think, of this idea, this assumption that I think underwrites a lot of people's religious convictions, uh, Christian, Jewish, and beyond. I think it's just a very human instinct to think this way. We tend to think that the fact that we're alive, the fact that we're still here and breathing, is evidence that somehow we, we are blessed and have done something right. And that the people who have died, especially who have died through some kind of tragedy, well, they must have done something wrong. Unlike us, we, we've done it right and we, we've stayed here. Always there's this tendency whenever something tragic happens, people really want somebody to blame. So that's why you have every few years, of course, some kind of tragedy. It'll be a hurricane, a tornado, uh, you know, some sort of terrible phenomenon, an earthquake happens somewhere. And you'll always have some televangelist that gets up every couple years and says, well, we know the reason this happened in Florida. It's because of the gays. Or we know the reason this happened. It's because of the abortionists. Note, by the way, that would only be interesting to me if some televangelist ever actually said, hey, that tragedy next, last week, sorry, guys. I looked at something last week on my computer I shouldn't have. That one was on me. <laughs> Sorry. Like, no, one ever, no one ever takes responsibility for this, right? Like, I think that one was me, guys. You know, I did some hard drugs last week, and it's always somebody else's fault. That's the, in, that's the instinct, is to blame so that we can keep our sense of order. We want to know why these things happen so that we can make sense of the world. And, and in that way, I think there's something in us that really wants a world where there's karma. We want what goes around comes around because that's a world that we can control. If it's as simple as so long as I do the right things, then God will take care of me. Or if God's like the Godfather, give him you know, $300 every week in the offering plate and he won't let anything bad happen to your family, that's a world that we, you know, we can kind of control and have a sense of order. Jesus undercuts this at every turn. In the Sermon on the Mount, he famously teaches that God is the one who makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So whether you're good, whether you're bad, who cares? God blesses all. God does good to all. So none of this is based on merits and demerits. Life just doesn't work that way. Bad things, as we would say it, bad things do happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. There's no rhyme nor reason to this in many ways. The world is just kind of wild in that way, which is both encouraging in some ways because part of what it means is no matter who you are, what you've done, there's always a kind of grace that God displays to us in the world. That's wonderful. But also it's really unsettling. Like I, 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 just to, to be really candid, I'm not saying this like in a preacher illustration way, I want to believe that me paying tithes will guarantee that I won't get cancer. I want that. 
I want to know that if I attempt, that if I spend a certain amount of time doing prayer and studying scripture way, that it will mean that I'm not going to be in a car accident next week. There's still a part of me that's looking for those kinds of assurances. So I get a little nervous when I read this and I'm reminded all over again, oh yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Bad stuff happens to everybody. And on one hand, there's a kind of grace in that, in that, you know, Jesus is clearly making the point that this is not always about punishment, as he does often, you know, when people are trying to figure out why is this person blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? No, that's just not how the world works. That's not how God works. But the thing that still makes this unsettling is that for Jesus, this is a call then to live in a kind of urgency. So it's this idea that since the world is this fragile, since we are such fragile creatures, since anything bad could happen to any of us any time, that, he says here, is the reason why we should repent, which here is not some big ceremonial display of contrition. Simply, always repentance for Jesus, it's, a, it's about changing your mind. It's about having a change of heart. It's about having a new orientation towards God and to the world. Because we see how frail and small we are, because we see how fragile our bodies are, because we know something bad could happen to any of us any time, we should live with this kind of urgency. And, and of course, there's something about this that, that just lands in a place that's deeply distressing. And yet, the thing that's so interesting about the parable Jesus tells after it, which is so short, can we re- revisit that again for just a second? Man has a fig tree in the vineyard, very short. The landowner wants to cut the tree down because it's not bearing fruit. Let's cut this thing down. The gardener pleads with him and says, eh, let's not do it just yet. Maybe we should give another year. I'll plant, I'll put some manure, we'll get some fertilizer down. Maybe next year it will bear fruit and you know, we'll see. So next year if it bears fruit, we can keep it around. And if it's not, we'll cut it down. End of parable. Bam. I always hear with these short parables of Jesus that pack such a punch, I kind of envision Jesus just like dropping the mic because it's like so, <laughs> like, how do you make sense of that? What are you going to do with it? What am I so? It's so open-ended. So, and, and this rounds out the picture. So to recap for just a moment, hey, so these people who have died in these tragedies, you think they're any worse than you are? No, no, this could happen to you. This could happen to any of us. Because life is frail and fragile in that way. If you don't repent, if you don't change your own mind, if you don't change your own heart, you're going to meet some kind of a terrible end anyway. But, 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 God is patient. Jesus is the one who pleads for us. Jesus is the one who's always saying, let's give it another year. Jesus is always the one uh, kind of giving more time and more space. So God is patient. God is gracious. God is holding judgment at bay so that we could have space for repentance, but judgment is coming. What are you going to do with this? Once again, bam. That's just thrown into our laps, which really is the question I want to bring for us today. What are we going to do with this? I wish I had time. I could never do this in a whole message, tell you everything I think about judgment, Um, that shifted so much in the course of my life because I think historically I was so afraid of God. I thought God was something and someone to be terrified about. And I'm I'm not terrified of God the way that I used to be for sure because I'm so convinced that God is good. I'm so convinced that his purposes, his desires for me and for all of creation really are so fundamentally good. I don't have that kind of dread of God anymore. And yet I will say Even as I'm convinced about the character of God, the song we sing here I love so much, he's a good, good father, there is something kind of fundamentally fearsome to me about judgment still, for sure. Not because I'm afraid of what God is going to do to me 
I don't think God is petty and punitive and retributive. I'm not worried about what God is going to do to me. But I do think that part of what makes judgment so scary is that judgment always involves having to look in the mirror and to encounter our true self, having to see ourselves for who and what we really are, which if that doesn't sober you up, you're just not paying attention. Cody's fantastic joke today. You are lacking the gift of self-awareness. If there's not some fear of judgment, not the terror fear, God against my will is going to throw me in hell and torture me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the healthy kind of sobriety that comes with knowing that we all are going to give an account for our lives. You think I like talking about this? I had this image this morning. I don't, have you, anybody seen the film The Neverending Story? Anybody ever seen this movie? That was back in the days when fantasy movies were awesome where there was puppets instead of like every, everything looking like video games. Like, I love The NeverEnding Story. Don't have time for a bunch of context here. So just the, the, the bare bones for my purposes. Atreyu is this young warrior who's on a quest, and he goes through these series of gates. You see where all these brave knights before have gone before him, and they never make it through the test. He goes through one gate, then the next, and always the next one is going to be more terrifying than one to come. What, the scene terrified me when I was a child. I saw it in 1984 when it came out. It was so scary. as this one where he runs through this gate where there's these statues, and if you don't like run fast enough through it, laser beams come out of the eyes of the statues and like annihilate people. So you see like this, uh, the skeleton of a knight who's been burned you know, alive before trying to go through the gate. That seems super scary. And then he's told after that that he has to go through a gate that's going to be even scarier. And you're thinking, what could be scarier than that? What is scarier than laser beams coming out? These are great things just to tweet, just those lines. What could possibly be scarier than laser beams coming out of the eyes of a statue? Well, it turns out, the next gate, which is where Atreyu has to look into this mirror. And the mirror, he sees his true self. For me, it's such a powerful image of judgment where there is an account to be given for who we are, for what we've done. Uh, again, not having time for a full treatment of this, I will just say I think part of what the gospel calls us to do is that if we allow ourselves to enter into that kind of judgment now, if we allow ourselves to live in that kind of examination now, allow God to hold up the mirror and then to display his mercy over all of our witness, that's where we have nothing to fear ultimately from the day of judgment because we're allowing that judgment in here and now. But yes, so long as you're trying to keep judgment at bay, live in denial, uh, bury your head in the sand, judgment's a really scary thing. Is that making sense at all? which is why I think we want to keep it at bay. Jesus here uses this as a catalyst to say we need to repent. Since we know how frail our bodies are, given the fragility of life, it gives a sense of urgency. What are you going to do with this life that you've been given? So for the last few days, I've thought a lot about a poem that I really love. I don't often share poems in church, but this one by Mary Oliver has meant so much to me. And I love Mary Oliver in general, I think kind of through my own shipwreck season, poetry became so much more important for me because it be kind of giving language to emotions I didn't otherwise know how to, to name. And this is a favorite of mine by Mary Oliver called The Summer Day I wanted to share with you. Is that okay? A little reading time, a little poetry time with Pastor Jonathan, a little segment we could add here. Mary Oliver writes, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. 
Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. And this is my favorite part. I really wanted to, really wanted to share this with you. Tell me what else should I have done? Does it everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What an extraordinary question. One of the things I like about Mary Oliver is that she always pays attention to nature and creation, which I think is what always, often puts us, gives us this sense of scale and perspective of the fragility of life. I had a moment a couple years ago, I told about sort of part A of this a while back, I know I was talking about this experience I had on a spiritual retreat in San Diego, it was seen before I resigned the church that I founded and led for nine years, in great, great pain, felt like ultimately that's what I had to do, and I felt like the sort of letting go kind of started with this week, and one thing I'm pretty sure I didn't, I didn't share that day was that within my first couple of days, my spiritual director sent me to uh, th- this, uh, this place in San Diego, like this point, top of a mountain, it's beautiful, overlooks the city, so you see the city on one side, you see the ocean, absolutely spectacular, stunning, 360 view degree uh, view of, of San Diego, just the panorama is glorious, it is, it's just, I, it's so vivid to me now to feel the wind in that spot, it's such a gorgeous place to be. But I remember having a moment in particular where as I'm looking out over the city and as I'm looking out over the water and so taken by the beauty of all this, I'm also looking at this military cemetery there where you see all the graves. I'm looking at the ocean at one side and all the graves on the other. And I really think that was the first time in my life that I have truly contemplated my own death. I don't think I'd ever truly done it before. I think like intellectually I knew I was going to die, but I don't think I really believed I was going to die. Isn't that sort of the weird kind of novelty, I think, of youth, is that on some level, even though we know we are all going to die, you don't really believe you're going to die (laughs) because we haven't had this experience. We don't know what it's like to not be conscious in the ways that we're conscious now. We don't know what that life is going to look like. We can't imagine it, so we often don't believe it's really going to happen to us. And I was standing there overlooking the city of San Diego, all the beauty, look at, watching the waves hit the rocks and just staggered by that beauty, looking at the graveyard, and it just landed on me like a ton of bricks. I'm going to die. This is the most encouraging message you'll ever hear. <laughs> you are one step closer to death today than you were yesterday. How did you feel about that? We're all actively dying. God bless you guys. Amen. Come back next week. We have to like it. So, I mean, these are just not things that you're prone to think about. And it, what was strange about it is that on one hand, I felt a real sense of grace in that. It's like I'm grasping something of the fact that I really, this, it was funny. More than I can even articulate into words, it almost felt like all this downloaded in my brain. Um, you're getting the super mystical Pentecostal side today. So if, apologies for that if you need them. I, it, I just, it's like I just saw it differently. All this stuff. Thousands of people every day are born. Thousands of people every day are dying. All of this has been happening long before I got here. And all of this will continue happening long after I'm gone. 
I didn't set this in motion. In the words of the prophet Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. This has always been going. It always keeps going. And on one hand, it's, there's something about grasping your smallness in that way that's kind of liberating. You know, most of us will not be remembered. People will not remember our names. Uh, only a handful of people alive in our time will be remembered. We remember Abraham Lincoln's name. Maybe a future generations will remember Kanye West's name. I don't know. There won't be many of us. I can assure you of that. I don't know why I just dropped a Yeezy reference on you guys. It just felt right somehow. You know, but like, and even then, like, what, what do we really know about Abraham Lincoln? More written about him than almost anybody else of his era. But we don't know what it's like to be Abraham Lincoln about his own sort of interior drama. Like, most of us are going to be are going to be forgotten at some point. Like, no one will know our names. Nobody will know anything about our existence. On the one hand, there's something about this that actually is, is kind of liberating to see your smallness in this way because then that means, in some ways, the stakes might not be as high as they feel because, like, the world doesn't revolve around us. That part was liberating for me. But there was another part of it that was equally really sobering because when you really grasp how fragile your life is, that the only thing that's between me and the grave is what? Um, some kind of mutation in my cell, some kind of cancer, some kind of car accident, some kind of... I'm, I'm not trying to just put out all the worst case scenarios for you to just think about. Some of us are prone to do that too much anyway. But it does just give you a sense like it's all fleeting. It all goes so quickly. And we could go at any given time. There is something about that that's really sobering. Because this life that we have, it really is pretty short, like vapor, uh, vapor, the psalmist will say, and James will reiterate this later. If our life is like a vapor, it's, it's a mist. It's here one moment, and the next moment it's gone. There is something kind of sobering about that. Not because, again, God's a petty, punitive tyrant, and we need to be afraid about what he's going to do to us, but he has given us this one wild, precious life. Does it last very long? And what we do with it does matter. It, it needs to count for something. It needs to be about something. Now, in all honesty, like full disclosure, I, I am not preaching any of this in a cavalier way because this stuff actually, maybe now more than ever in my life, cuts me to the core to think about. I, like anybody else, want to populate my life with as much noise, sound, as many moving screens as possible so I don't have to think about the kinds of things I'm talking about right now. If I can bury my head in the sand, if I can stay busy enough to stay a little bit ahead of the soul questions. You think preachers don't do that? We, no, nobody wants to, you don't want to contemplate these things too much too often. You, you want to escape them a lot. So something about how this question even hits me today, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Like that, that, that really pulls on some things. Because inevitably at any given point in my life, there's going to be a lot of stuff in my life that I know ultimately um, is not really constructive. Not talking about even sin necessarily, just stuff that's not constructive. Things that I'm investing in, things that I'm busy with that don't have anything to do with the kind of person that I ultimately want to become and what I want to do with my time here on earth. Like all of that always just becomes so fundamentally sobering. You know, to, um, to be completely honest with you, and I'm still not used to talking about this in the past tense, but divorce for me has just complicated that immensely. Like, I don't think I ever could have really fathomed just how deep that tearing goes, how much it feels like I'm torn apart, that things about me are kind of torn in half now. And so that sense of, like, what purpose looks like, what meaning really looks like, gracious. Um, I think, <laughs> don't worry, it's not group therapy, I promise. I'm not just trying to 
vomit on you fine people. But I like, I, I, sometimes I think, you know, because I do think the first way that we answer this question, I think it's the most important actually, is immediately we think about our relationships. Like if there's anything that we can invest in that's going to somehow be beyond us to give us an overarching sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment, surely that's in the relationships that are most vital to us. So if there's a tearing, if there's a fracturing in that kind of relationship, that calls so much into question. Uh, I, I don't have kids, and I know a lot of you can identify with this. I, I mean, I'm 37, so most of, my, most of the people I'm close to in my life do have kids. And if I'm honest, like, I, I, I've, I've been enough around that world to where I don't romanticize uh, having babies and raising kids. I know like, it's extremely complex, but I do find often that when people have kids, that that kind of helps give them this overarching sense of meaning and purpose. Because it's like, okay, so now my DNA is in these little bodies, and that gives me a reason to be that's bigger than myself. I'm living for, for their sake. I'm living to pour into them. My life has meaning because I'm going to invest in this next generation. And your whole orientation begins to be changed by that. I didn't ever think in my life before that was something to grieve, like I wasn't upset about that. And yet there's something now where you know, I have these moments where I wonder, like, am I ever, ever going to get my own sense of fulfillment, meaning, whatever, right in that regard, or am I somehow stunted because I haven't been a father? Does that mean like there's a part of me that's just not developed? Does that mean that there's a part of me that's like destined to be immature and selfish on some level because I don't know what it's like to invest in something beyond myself in that way? Like these are like real, real, raw questions. And again, some I know that some of you deeply identify with. You know, and, and I think in then this broader sense, beyond like relationships, what am I doing with my life? Like, don't get me wrong. I always want to give this qualification. I don't think everybody should be doing some kind of full-time ministry, blah, blah, blah. But we do want our work in the world generally to have some kind of meaning, right? Some sense of vocation, some sense that we're doing something that we're called to do, that we've been put on earth to do, some way that we're making some kind of a difference. I wish I could tell you that because I'm in full-time vocational ministry that that's always abundantly clear to me, but it's not. Like anybody else, I can get wrapped up in the minutia of the task, and it's not always incredibly clear to me, like, what am I here for? What am I here to do? And depending, depending on the day, those questions can just land on me like a ton of bricks. What am I going to do with my one wild and precious life? I don't know, because every minute from this moment in the morning till this time at night is booked up with something else, right? I don't even have time to think about this. Is that ringing true for anybody? Like, who just has time to just sit around infinitely and just think about meaning, right? Ponder all of the existential questions. Our lives aren't ordered in that way. There still are bills to be paid. There's stuff that's got to get done. And some of you already, this stirs up deep things. But by 2 o'clock today, we'll already have to be on to something else because that's kind of how life is ordered. Things can be profoundly. I'm just trying to say, again, not trying to let my soul vomit so much. I just, I just want to communicate something of how urgent and real-time these questions are for me now because I still find them to be so fundamentally uncomfortable. I know that God is gracious. I know that God is merciful. I've never been more comfortable than I am right now resting in the mercy of God to cover my sin, inadequacy, and failure. That doesn't mean, though, that I don't have to give an account. That doesn't mean there won't be judgment. That doesn't mean that there won't be some having to own the life that I've lived. And that's as scary for me as it is for anybody else. <laughs> Again, I'm almost laughing at something. I laugh at awkward things. It's like I love awkward humor and entertainment. And there's just sometimes where it's like, like, this is so heavy to me right now that it's almost like, ha, ha, ha. Like, it's just, 
I know, there's just nothing remotely camp meeting about any of this. But, but, but again, it comes from some deep places. I wanted, um, I, I had an experience this week that pulled on some stuff for me, at least in kind of the vocational sense of that question. And I wanted to share it with you really by way of illustration in terms of what some of that might look like for you. I don't know. But I had a, um, I had a strange experience a few years ago, and that I just, with everything else that's happened in my life and all the transition, it's just not something I've thought about for a really long time. Um, there, was this, uh, pr- there was this particular time a couple years ago where, and I remember this week very vividly, I had for the first time heard about a writer, theologian by the name of Robert Farrar Capon, was an Episcopal priest, and I heard his name mentioned somewhere online, saw a quote or something, and I got intrigued. So there was this one day in particular where I was getting ready to do a series at the church I pastored on the Beatitudes, never taught on the parables, I'm sorry, I said the Beatitudes, uh, on the parables of Jesus. I was going to do a series on the parables, not the Beatitudes. Uh, and I was so excited about it, but you know, never preached through the parables before, didn't know exactly where it was going to go. So Capon's name came up, and I bought this book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, Paradox, Outrage, and Vindication in the Parables of Jesus. It's actually a trilogy of three books collected together that Capon did on the parables. So I got it on a, I believe it was a Wednesday morning, and I just started reading voraciously. Those of you who don't know me well, like I'm a super obsessive personality and just a wildly unhealthy human being, really. And so whatever, <laughs> whatever I'm thinking about, I fixate on. That's all I know how to do is fixate on a thing until it's, like, it's through. So, of course, I spent like the whole day reading and taking notes. And I was just so swept up by everything that I read. Capon's treatment of the parables was so fresh to me. And I felt like, um, I, I joked to people that Robert Farrar Capon is my spirit animal. Uh, I, I say that facetiously, but it was like, where has this person been all my life? Because all, all, all the kind of wiring in me in terms of how I think about God and how I think about grace and how I want to articulate the scandal of grace, I feel like he did, but did it infinitely better. And it so resonated with my soul. It's like, all these things that, that I didn't have language for, I'm reading it in print, and it was really powerful for me. There really was this just like deep sense of connection where it's like, oh, th- th- again, where has this person been? Why have I not been reading this before? And why is this landing in such a deep place? It was really, really stunning, and I, I can't even, I mean, I read a lot of books. At that point in my life, <laughs> I'm making fun of people not having endless time of contemplation, but I took study so seriously, I was probably reading three or four books a week, easy. And I mean, I, I never have something like that that was so like, I mean, it just kind of tore me out of the frame. Just to give you a little uh, taste of this, I, we have a few quotes of Capons for the screen. Some just almost selected at random, some of the kinds of things I was reading that for me were so resonating with my own soul, with my own journey, with things I was coming to see. Um, if we can go to that first one. Yeah. Caven writes, the world is more God's hobby than his business. It exists for pleasure more than for profit. God's attitude towards the world, therefore, involves favor from the start. Grace is not something he drags in later on just to patch up the messes. Unnecessary, spontaneous delight is the very root of his relationship to the world. Love that so much. Or, grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Grace doesn't sell. I really love this one. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. That is a great quote. Only when you're finally able with the publican to admit that you are dead will you be able to stop balking at grace. Or this one. Grace perennially waits for us to accept our destruction 
And in that acceptance, you discover the power of the resurrection and the life. So much that was kind of stirring in me at the time that just it was giving language for it. It was so profound. One more a little longer uh, because I just really love this little section. Capon writes, in Jesus, God has put up a gone fishing sign on the religion shop. He has done the whole job in Jesus once and for all and simply invited us to believe it, to trust the bizarre, unprovable proposition that in him, every last person on earth is already home free without a single religious exertion. No fasting till your knees fold, no prayers you have to get right or else, no standing on your head with your right thumb and your left ear and reciting the correct creed. No, nothing. The entire show has been set to rights in the mystery of Christ, even though nobody can see a single improvement. Yes, it's crazy. And yes, it's wild and outrageous and vulgar. And any God who would do such a thing is a God who has no taste. And worst of all, it doesn't sell worth beans. But it is good news. The only permanently good news there is, and therefore I find it absolutely captivating. Those are the kinds of things I was reading. And just tearing me up. Now, I learned a lot more about Capon after that, and again, since this is vulnerability 2.0 here today, um, part of what I didn't know at the time was that Capon's own story, you know, he wrote, he was, just a, he was just this man who just loved life. He loved cooking. He wrote a book in the 60s, this actually his best-selling book called The Supper of the Lamb, about theology and cooking. Just this man of great, like, uh, just these great appetites. He loved God, loved creation, etc., but in the 70s, he went through a divorce himself at, after being married for 28 years, had four kids, pretty devastating, changed the course of his life, always had this kind of radical grace message, but he seemed to cling to it in a different way and to live from it, uh, from, a, from a deeper place because it came such a kind of desperation for him. I could feel that in print. And you have to understand that the day that this happened on this particular Wednesday was literally a couple weeks before my life entirely unraveled. There was all kind of stuff going on in my head and heart that was not remotely sorted. I was a mess in so many ways. But there was just such a sense as I'm reading these things of the rightness of this message and that somehow this message has captured me and, and I really believe this. I don't know what else I believe right now because there's too many things about my own identity right now that are in question, but I know I believe this. And man, it was just something about drinking that down that was so profound that day. A full day of just reading Capon. That night before I went to sleep, and this is the punchline that's just weird, believe this or not, that night I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed, and I read that Robert Ferrar Capon, Christian theologian, author, died today at 88 years old. That day, the day that I discovered Capon and spent the entire day reading him, he died that night at 88. All those years of being alive, I discover him on this day, have this profound experience reading this, and then that night, read that he's dead? I mean, I could have discovered it. How, how many years could I have discovered him before of his previous 88, you know, and of all the days? So if you ask me, like, how would you explain that? I don't know how to explain that. What does that mean? I'm not entirely sure, but I'll tell you what I felt. And I don't even like saying it now. I've never, I've only told this, by the way, to maybe three or four people before today. So, here you go, everybody. Here are the contents of my soul on the table as usual. But I had this deep sense as I was reading it. I had this deep sense that something about the calling and vocation on this man's life, this kind of radical grace message that captures the scandal and shock of it from a place of his own vulnerability and frailty and brokenness, that something of that was being passed on to me. And there was some, something I'm supposed to do with it. I don't say that pretentiously. Actually, Capon's books didn't sell well. 
<laughs> at all. So it wasn't even have this extraordinary influence. But it was like something of that message I felt like was being passed on to me in some way. Does that sound weird to you? Because it creeps me out. I mean, I don't, like, I'm not, I'm not looking for these kind of things. I'm not into, like, fairy dust falling or gold teeth fillings in the spirit or whatever. Like, that's just not my scene. I don't know why these things happen the way they do. But I say all that to say, it was so strange this week that in studying for this sermon, I thought about this, I thought about Capon for the first time in the longest time. And I pulled out my old book on the parables. And it was funny because here I am, given this message, already knowing what I felt like it was supposed to be about. What are you gonna do with your one wild and precious life? And something about reading Capon again reminded me what I feel like I'm supposed to do with mine. That at least some part of it is that I'm supposed to embody this grace message and the brokenness of it and owning my own brokenness in humanity, but also pushing the shock and scandal of the message of the grace of God as far as I possibly can. But that's just something I'm supposed to do. So it was just a way that the Lord had of like gesturing that at me. I, all of that to say, and again, no matter what you do or where you do it or how you do it, really want to raise the question, what, is, what does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? What is that thing that you feel like God has uniquely put you here to do? maybe this turns out to be a time of affirmation. Sometimes when I ask those questions, it can be affirming, like, oh, I think I really am living in light of that right now. I think I really am living my one wild and precious life in full view of the things I'm really supposed to be doing. But other times it's really sobering because maybe the stuff that I'm doing right now doesn't push in that direction at all. I want to take a couple minutes to pray before we come to the table, and I want to really just press in on this a bit because, and again, this is just not a foot-stomping kind of message. I, really, I hate it because I really like to do some foot-stomping today, honestly. But this feels very tender. I just want you to close your eyes where you are. And I want us to just take a moment, just a couple minutes really, to just lean into this prayer time in kind of a different way and just to really be open. Holy Spirit, we just invite you as the one who searches the mind and heart of God, but also searches our own spirit to come and reveal yourself and to make some things clear, some things that we're bearing right now, some things we're not looking at to gently bring us into the light of your judgment, knowing that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus the Son cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with one another. We want that, Lord. We want to welcome your light. We want to welcome your truth, spirit of truth. Come and open us now. Come and pry into us now. Look into us. As David prayed, search my heart. Try my anxious thoughts. Come, spirit, and review the contents of our very soul, Lord. And in the spirit of prayer, I just want to raise that question again. What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? What are you doing with it now? Knowing that you don't have forever to live in this form, in this way, where's the, a sense of urgency? What are you investing in right now that deep down in your soul, you don't have peace that you're supposed to be investing in this relationship or in this project. What are the things that are life-giving? What are the things you know that God is calling you to do, but there's some fear, there's something that keeps you from fully leaning into that? What are you going to do with your wild and precious life? And finally, just I want to lead you in a short meditation. Just keep your eyes closed if you don't mind. For anybody who feels comfortable, if you don't feel comfortable, that's totally fine. I, um, I know Pastor Ed has talked a few times about the sign of the cross and sort of recapturing some of these things that really aren't just for Catholic tradition or whatever, but for the whole body of Christ. And a few weeks ago when I was on the spiritual retreat, uh, we did a prayer exercise in this way that was very powerful for me. I just wanted to share it for you if it would be useful because 
God's been using it in my life. But just invite you, feel comfortable, just to put your, head in the, your hand in the center of your forehead, really. And this is a, is a, is a way first of just, just inviting God the Father. Father, you are the, the God who loves us. You are the Father who knows how to give good gifts to your children. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. So we just, Lord, as we enter into this reflection, God, we just proclaim that we trust you, Father. We trust the heart that you have for your sons and daughters. We ask you to quiet our minds. We ask you to still our hearts. We ask you to remove from us the terror of the things that we're afraid you might say to us, knowing that your heart for us is only blessing and is only good, Father. We just pray that you would bring stillness and quiet to our minds. And now, if you would, just to place your hand in the center of your chest. And now, Son, Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, we just invite you, Lord, to be Lord of our affections, to be Lord of our hearts, all of our unruly feelings, all of our unpredictable feelings and responses. We just invite your Lordship gently into those areas now that you would rein us in, uh, that you know all of our wild desires, you know all of our competing affections, and we just... Surrender them to you, Jesus, to your lordship. Every vain imagination that rises against you, we just bring under the captivity of Christ now. And if you would now with your right hand, just place that over your left shoulder. We just, in this posture, we, we just bring to mind all of our sins, all of our failures, all the things about our past that in moments like this rise right to the surface. Immediately we start to think about things we're ashamed of. Immediately we start to think about things that we regret. Immediately we start to, to, to focus almost obsessively on the ways we're not living out of our, our deepest sense of, of calling. And so, Lord, we just bring those things into your presence now. And we pray for your cleansing, for your forgiveness. We thank you that you, for the ways that you eradicate the past. We thank you that truly you're making all things new even now. And we just surrender the past to you. We surrender our failure, our sin, our doubt, our disappointment. And finally, just placing your right hand over your right shoulder. Now, spirit, spirit of the future, spirit that makes the rule of God in the future known in our present. We just invite you now to lead us into the future that you have ordained for us. We invite you, God, to take us to the places we don't know how to go. We trust you with our children. We trust you with our families. We trust you with our desires. We trust you with our questions. We trust you with our future, God, that you would direct us, that you would make plain the things that are not yet plain. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.